Jewish author Eli Weisel was 15 when he and the rest of his family were sent to a concentration camp in 1944. Uh, Weisel suffered unspeakable horrors, including the murder of his father, his mother, and his sister at camp. And in 1960, Weisel penned these harrowing words in his memoir, Night. And he says, Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Yet, despite enduring such unbearable grief and pain, Weisel continued to cling on to hope. And some years after he wrote his memoir, he said in a Nobel lecture in 1986, and I quote, Just as man cannot live without dreams, he cannot live without hope. If dreams reflect the past, hope summons the future. Hope is possible beyond despair. Now, friends, hope is invaluable. You know, I think we can bear the loss of all things, but... I think we cannot endure the loss of hope. Hope is so fundamental to our well-being. Hope turns our gaze beyond our present troubles towards a better future. Hope gives purpose and meaning to life. In a fallen world wracked by anguish and distress, many are searching for hope, something to get us through the day, something to give us a reason to get out of bed in the morning. What are we hoping in? Can it carry us through the uncertainties of life and the certainty of death? You know, Hebrews repeatedly urges us to cling on to hope. You know, it says in chapter 3, verse 6, we are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. 6 verse 11 says, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And then later on in 10 verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. I I think all these verses kind of beg the question, what hope is Hebrews talking about? What, What kind of hope are we to hold on to? We come to a part in Hebrews that tells us about the unshakable hope that is our sure and steady anchor in the storms of life. Such hope is not wishful thinking. It's different from the way we use the word hope. We say things like, I hope it doesn't rain, or I hope it rains. I hope this happens. I hope I pass my exams. But that's not how Hebrews uses the word hope. Hope is not wishful thinking. It's not blind optimism. Hope is not simply looking on the bright side of life, naively thinking that every cloud has a silver lining. Well, sometimes they don't. Hope does not depend on our performance, does not depend on our feelings, does not depend on our experiences or even our circumstances. Hebrews urges us to look outside of ourselves and upwards to God to find true and lasting hope. Oh, this is the big idea of these verses. Hold fast to the hope we have in the gospel because Jesus, the better high priest, 
guarantees it. Hold fast to the hope we have in the gospel because Jesus, the better high priest, guarantees it. So two main points as we work through our passage. Number one, we have a sure hope. And number two, we have a better high priest. So let's look at the first part of our text, verses 13 to 20 in Hebrews chapter 6. And this is found on page 944 of our Pew Bibles. And if you need a Bible, you don't have one, feel free to take the Pew Bible along with you. After the service, we'd love to bless you with God's Word. So follow along as I read from verse 13 to 20 in Hebrews chapter 6. An oath is a solemn binding commitment, right? Hebrews in verse 16 explains it, right? People swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So for example, when we want to do something important, something significant, what do we do? We sign a contract. We are pledging under the law of the land's authority to fulfill our legal obligation. That, that, That in essence is what an oath is. So we put things down in writing and make oaths. Why? Because our word is not good enough, right? You know, imagine you do something important and you tell the the other party in that negotiations, hey, trust me, my, my word is good. <laughs> right? No, they're going to make you sign a contract because our word is not good enough. Right? We, we, want to be, we want things in black and white. Uh, and and you know, oftentimes when there's a dispute, what do we do? We say things like, hey, show me black and white. Right? That's why lawyers have jobs. Right? The, 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 the presence of a document is the end of the argument, right? end of dispute. You can bring it before the judge and say, look, this is signed. End of dispute. Well, that's exactly what Hebrews is saying in verse 16. Right? We, we, we make oaths because our word is not good enough, because we are not trustworthy enough. Right? We break our promises. But God is not like us, is He? God is not like us. You know, his, his character is true. His word, therefore, is true and trustworthy. So we would expect God's promise to be enough, would we? Now, if we trust Him, then surely His promise is enough. So if God's promise ought to be good enough, then why on earth did God have to swear an oath? Why did God put Himself under oath? Well, it's not because God is not trustworthy, but God did so for Abraham's sake. And God did so for our sake. Isn't that amazing? That God swore an oath for us, for our Encouragement. Right, look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's why he wanted to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. He wanted to show us that we can rest in him. If we have believed in Jesus, then we are Abraham's offspring. So we have a part in God's promise to Abraham, our forefather in the faith, if we have trusted in Jesus. In fact, we are the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Because remember what he promised Abraham? That he would bless Abraham with many descendants. And in Abraham's seed, he will bless the nations. Well, we are that fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. We are the heirs of God's promise. So this is for us. 
This promise to Abraham way back in Genesis, this is for us as well. Yet we don't always live in light of God's promises, do we? You know, during the week, we get busy with our lives, amidst the stresses and strains of daily life, we forget God's promises. You know, we don't, we don't often wake up in the morning and say, oh, thank God for your promises. They're sure and steadfast. You know, we wake up in the mornings worried about what will face us during the day. You know, the, the promises of God can often seem very far away in our daily lives. We're prone to distraction, prone to disbelief, prone to doubt. When, when trials come, our confidence in God often wavers. Now, we wonder if we can really trust Him. We wonder if we can really rely on Him to take care of us. Or even as we profess faith in God, we are making plans, right, to, to kind of really take care of ourselves. That's us during the week. We return to worldly comforts. We trust in false hopes like health, wealth, security, jobs, whatever. But, but take heart. I think this, this verse, verse 17, reminds us that God knows our weaknesses. God knows that we don't always trust Him. God knows that we struggle to hope in Him. And He reassures us. He purposely reassures us. He, he doesn't simply call us to trust Him, but He wants us to know for certain that we can trust Him. Therefore, for our sake, because He knows our weakness, God has guaranteed His promise with an oath. You know, think about it, beloved. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to do that. But He did. That's the amazing thing. He did. Why? For our sake. In His kindness and compassion to weak saints like us, those of us who are in Christ, God has gone out of his way to assure us that his word is true and that his purpose does not change. And we have a, a sure hope based on two unchangeable things, not just one, but two. Two unchangeable things, God's promise and God's oath. And Hebrews says in both of these things, it is impossible for God to lie. You know, God's word and oath are true because God Himself is true and His character is unchanging. Right? Numbers 23, God is not man that He should lie or a son of man that He should change His mind. Has He said and will He not do it? Or has He spoken and will He not fulfill it? God has graciously given us His promise and oath. Verse, the next verse tells us, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Verse 18, that, that's the point. God backs up His promise with an oath so that we have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. Therefore, hold fast to the hope we have in the gospel because God is faithful and His word is true. And then Hebrews goes on to tell us that this hope that we have is founded on God's Son, who fulfills both God's promise as well as His oath. Verse, verses 19 and 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that 
enters. Is it interesting? It's a bit of personification there. A hope enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This hope is the anchor keeping us from drifting away. Oh, beloved, this is our hope. When we are tempted, we fall into sin. This is our hope when we suffer pain and sorrow. This is our hope when we are lonely, when we are weary and worn out. This is our hope when depression and despair overwhelm us. This is our hope when our loved ones disappoint and hurt us. This is our hope when friends forsake us. Now, this is our hope when we struggle at school or at work, when we lose our jobs. This is our hope when our bodies weaken, when health fails. This is our hope in life and in death. In tough times, we, we must preach the gospel to ourselves. Our lives may be falling apart, but we have a sure hope that will not fail. In good times, when we're tempted to trust in ourselves and in our success, preach the gospel to ourselves. Jesus is better, and in Him, we have a hope that has entered into the inner place behind the curtain. Our hope is certain because it has gone into the very presence of God. That's our hope. Now, once we had no hope, once we were without God in the world, and we tried to find hope in ourselves, we tried to find hope in other people, we tried to find hope in our relationships, in our achievements, in our circumstances, in what we can do to make life better for ourselves. But we had no hope, really. Nothing could truly meet our deepest need. Our sins separated us from the God of hope, from the holy God. But God, in His grace, kept His word to Abraham. How? By giving a son. Well, not just Isaac, but the son. God spared the life of Abraham's son, Isaac, but God did not spare his own son. Jesus gave his life to save sinners, dying and bearing God's judgment in our place. If we repent and believe in him, and Jesus rose from the, get, from, rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. Oh friend, are you looking for true hope? I think it's time to look outside of yourself, beyond your circumstances, and to look to the one who provides true hope. I, I love how it's described in these verses, right? We who have fled for refuge. Flee for refuge. Flee to the only place that is a refuge for our souls. Flee to Jesus. He has secured our hope. How? Well, Jesus has gone into God's holy presence. 
to atone for our sins through the priestly sacrifice of ourselves, of, of himself. Jesus is our forerunner. You know, a forerunner is like a scout that's sent ahead to kind of scout out the territory so the rest of the force can come in safely. Right? That, that's exactly what Jesus has done. He's a scout who has gone ahead of us to prepare the way for us to come to God. Jesus has gone ahead to where we could not go to open the way for us to draw near to God, who is our hope. Now, we who once were God's enemies, we were under His judgment, facing His wrath. But now, we have Him on our side because Jesus has gone into the very presence of God and He pleads for us before the Holy God. And this is our hope, that God has forgiven us in Christ that Jesus has made us holy by His blood, that we ourselves can boldly draw near to God to find grace, to help in our time of need. This, this is our hope. And this hope is true, regardless of how you think you're doing, regardless of how you may be feeling this morning. This is your hope. And indeed, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You know, in, in every high and stormy gale, our anchor holds within the veil. I love that song. We're going to sing it in a moment. But, but that's our hope, right? Our hope has entered into the holy place. Our hope pleads for us before the holy God. Our hope says to us, forgiven, cleansed, free in Christ. And we have God as our Father. That's our hope. We have a better high priest, point two. Our hope is sure because our high priest, Jesus, guarantees it. Jesus has become, 6 verse 20, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But who is Melchizedek? And why does he matter? And how does this truth about Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek. How does this truth help our hope? Well, chapter 7 of Hebrews is going to explain that for us. So Melchizedek is one of the more obscure characters of the Bible. In fact, he's mentioned in only a few verses in the Old Testament. Well, earlier on, we heard, of, we heard actually the bulk of those verses in Genesis 14. And then he's mentioned one other time in the Old Testament in Psalm 110. And in the New Testament, only Hebrews speaks of Melchizedek. So the author was about to tell us more about Melchizedek in chapter 5. But to prepare us to receive the solid food of the gospel, he first had to admonish us, he first had to warn us, he first had to encourage us to not be dull of hearing, to, to listen up. Right, so I trust that now we should be ready to hear about Melchizedek, about, what, about why Melchizedek, this rather obscure biblical character, why he matters to our hope. Well, Hebrews 7 is essentially uh, an explanation and application of this one verse, Psalm 110 verse 4. So Hebrews 7 is the explanation and application of Psalm 110 verse 4, a part of which is quoted in 6 verse 20. So Psalm 110 verse 4 says this, 
the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Right? So, so the author of Hebrews is about to explain this verse to us. Well, first off, know that Melchizedek foreshadows and points to Jesus Christ. His name literally means king of righteousness and king of... And then he's the king of Salem, which means peace, shalom, Salem, peace. So he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. So he's a king and a priest. Likewise, Jesus is a priest king who rules over us with righteousness and peace. So Melchizedek is, uh, you can say, a type of Jesus, a shadow of foreshadowing Jesus. And Hebrews 7 compares two priesthoods, the order of Melchizedek and the order of Levi. Right? Levi were, the sons were descended from Aaron. So in the Old Testament, the tribe of Levi produced priests and they served as priests. So there's a contrast between the Melchizedekian priesthood and the Levitical priesthood. That's what Hebrews 7 is doing. And, and the main point is this. So, so this is the main point. The priesthood of Melchizedek is better than the Levitical priesthood. That's the main point of Hebrews 7. Melchizedek, better. Levit Levitical, not so good. Therefore, Jesus, who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, is a better high priest. That's the conclusion of the argument. And since Jesus is a better high priest, he has secured for us a better hope. That's how it's connecting back to the idea of hope. Better high priest, better hope. So how is Jesus' priesthood better? So in the rest of our time, we're going to unpack chapter 7, and really notice five ways, five ways that Jesus' priesthood is better, right? So ready? We're going we're to dive into Hebrews 7 now. So five ways that Jesus' priesthood is better. Number one, superior. Okay, that's a bit, that sounds a bit like a tautology. His priesthood is better because he's superior. <laughs> Let me read from verses 1 to 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paves tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. 
Well, these, these verses refer to the account that we read earlier in Genesis 14, where Abraham rescued his nephew Lot by defeating the kings that had captured him. So after that victory, an interesting thing happens. Uh, this Melchizedek is, uh, rather, Abraham is blessed by this man who suddenly appears, Melchizedek. And then Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth tithe of the spoils from that victory. And from this small account in Genesis 14, Hebrews highlights two ways in which Melchizedek is superior. Number one, his priesthood doesn't end. You know, Melchizedek appears quite suddenly, abruptly, in the narrative of Genesis. You know, in a book of Genesis that's full of genealogies, full of births and deaths, the account of Melchizedek in Genesis 14 stands out because no mention is made of his family, no mention is made of where he comes from, no mention is made of his birth, no mention is made of his death. It is as if he has no beginning or end. He just pops up, then he vanishes from the scene. So in this way, Melchizedek resembles Jesus. Right? I think in, in some, some claim that Melchizedek is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, uh, Christophany, so to speak, I, I don't think so. I think Melchizedek is functioning more as a shadow of Christ. That's why it says in verse 3, he resembles Jesus. He's not an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, but he resembles the Son of God. He points forward to Jesus by contrast, the Levitical priests, in verse 8, says they were mortal men. It means they died. In fact, Aaron dies even before he arrives in the promised land, Numbers 20. So, number one, Melchizedek's, his priesthood doesn't end. That's how he's superior. The second way in which he's superior is because he's greater even than Levi's ancestor, Abraham. So under the Old Covenant law, the Israelites had to pay tithes to the Levitical priests, but Abraham paid tithes too and is blessed by Melchizedek. So instead of receiving tithes, Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. He offers something in tribute to Melchizedek. And then Hebrews makes this conclusion in verse 7. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In other words, Melchizedek is even greater than Abraham and is even greater than Abraham's descendants, Levi. Therefore, Jesus, who is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, must be superior to Abraham himself, must be superior to the Levitical priests that come from Abraham's line. So basically, trust in the better priest. Don't go back to the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. Trust in this better priest. So that's, that's the first point. This is how Jesus' priesthood is better. He's superior. Second one, he is, his priesthood is effective. Let me read from verses 11 to 14, and then 18 and 19. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. 
For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Let me me read down to verse 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So unlike the Levitical priesthood, Jesus' priesthood is effective. Right? That's, that's the point that Hebrews is making here. The old covenant law, along with its priests and sacrifices, had no power to save. So the law convicted, the law condemned, but the law was unable to cleanse and change guilty sinners. In, in, in this sense, the old covenant law was weak and useless. Verse 18 that's so why it says in verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. Uh, the law could not bring us back to God. Perfection here refers to the forgiveness of our sins, the transformation of our hearts, and the holiness of our lives. So the law was unable to do any of that. The law had no power to do any of that. In, in fact, what the law did was the law exposed our sin. And the law even increased our sin by provoking us to rebel against it. So the law actually increased the distance between us and the Holy God. The law didn't give us hope. Therefore, there was a need for another priest to arise from a different order. Melchizedek, not Aaron. A change in the priesthood means a change in the law as well. Why? Because under the law, the Old Testament law, the the priest had to come from the tribe of Levi. But Jesus didn't come from Levi. So how can he serve as priest? Well, Hebrews 7 says because there's a, there's a change in the law. The old covenant law has been surpassed by the gospel. Jesus was descended from Judah, from the royal line of David, King David, and therefore he is both king and priest, just like Melchizedek. Jesus is both Lord and Savior. So the old covenant has been replaced and surpassed by a new and better covenant, which we'll hear of more next week, chapter 8. So basically, don't go back to the types and shadows of the Old Testament. Don't rely on animal sacrifices. Don't, don't rely on any of that. Rely on Jesus, the better priest. You know, and friends, think about this. If, if we cannot draw near to God through God's law, then how much more useless are the filthy rags of our attempts at morality or religion. We cannot be good enough for God. None of us can. But He has graciously given us His Son, who is good for us. So don't go grow weary of the gospel. Don't give up Christ. Don't forsake Jesus for other things because only Jesus saves. Not our works, not our religion, not our morality. Only Jesus can bring us near to God. He is the better priest who has introduced a better hope through which we draw near to God. His priesthood is effective. His priesthood is also eternal. Let me read from verses 15 to 17 and then 23 to 25. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident 
when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 23, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The weakness of the Levitical priests is evident because they all died. It's very obvious. The, 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 the Levitical priesthood had no effect because they all, the priests themselves died. The descendants of Aaron became priests on their, based on their family line, on their family descent. That's why it says in verse 16, on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, basically you need to be born into the right family to serve as a priest. So they needed a succession plan. We talk a lot about succession plans. Why? Because we know we don't last forever. We need to plan ahead. We need to buy things like insurance. We need to set aside savings for our children. Why? Because we know that we won't live forever. So in the same way, the Old Testament priests needed a succession plan because every one of them died. The former priests were many in number, verse 23, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Verse 8, again, says they were all mortal men. Jesus, by contrast, is a priest forever. You know, that's that key word in Psalm 110, forever, because he lives. The old priests have come and gone, but Jesus remains by the power of an indestructible life. He is the better priest because his priesthood is eternal. doesn't end. It will never be cut short because Jesus has already defeated death through his resurrection. He died and rose never to die again. And we will be raised with him if we trust in him. Beloved, know that our Redeemer lives. Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. In an unpredictable world of constant change and decay, nothing lasts. The nest nest eggs that we diligently set aside, even that will not last. Our earthly lives will vanish like mist. But we do not lose, lose heart because we have a sure hope that shall never pass away. No, basically, a, a dead priest cannot save. But Jesus is strong to save because he doesn't die. Therefore, he's our eternal priest. And that's the conclusion that verse 25 makes, right? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Oh, friend, don't doubt if Jesus can save you. He can save you to the uttermost because he lives. His priesthood never ends. We can confidently come to God because Jesus is the permanent priest. We may struggle to pray consistently, but we have a high priest who never fails to intercede and to pray for us. 
He prays for us more than we pray for ourselves. That's why Paul in Romans makes a similar point. Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Oh, friends, don't hesitate to come to Jesus. Don't delay in drawing near to God through Jesus because He will always be there for us, literally. He will always be there for us because He doesn't die. I, I love the song that says, before, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Jesus' priesthood is eternal. His priesthood is certain. Under the old covenant, the Levites were made priests simply on the basis of physical descent without an oath. Jesus is different. Let me read for us from verses 20 to 22. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So the Levites were simply made priests because of descent because they were born in the right family. Jesus, however, was made priest by an oath from God. The Lord has sworn, verse 21. Therefore, Jesus' priesthood is certain because it has been guaranteed by God's oath. Just as God confirmed His promise to Abraham with an oath, He confirms Jesus' priesthood, not just with a promise, but with an oath as well. Confirm plus chop. Double confirm, or however you want to put it. His priestly sacrifice and work will never fail because God will see to it that it will never fail. Therefore, on the solid rock of these two unchangeable things, God's promise and God's oath, we can trust in Jesus to confidently, and we can trust in Him confidently, wholeheartedly. His priesthood, his priesthood will never alter or falter. God will keep His oath. He will never go back on His promise to save those who draw near to Him through Jesus. And therefore, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. You know, in Christ, our relationship with God is guaranteed. That's what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. It doesn't break. God will remember our sins no more. He will ever be our God. We shall ever be His people if we cling on to the hope that we have in Christ. Finally, Jesus' priesthood is perfect. Let me read from verses 26 to 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So we've seen how Jesus is the better high priest because his priesthood is superior, effective, eternal, and certain. Finally, his priesthood is perfect. Unlike the Levitical priests who had to atone for their own sins, Jesus did not need to because he's perfectly sinless. 
And how can we be sure of this? It's because Jesus has been, verse 26 says, exalted above the heavens. His resurrection and ascension in glory are the proof that He is the righteous one who has conquered sin and death. And Jesus died not for His own sins, for He had none at all, but He died for the sins of all who would trust in Him. Jesus has decisively, once for all, dealt with our sin and guilt through the final and full sacrifice of Himself. And we'll read more about the sacrifice of Jesus in chapters 9 and 10 in Hebrews. Basically, Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God who offered Himself, who died in our place, and He is fitting. He's exactly what we need. He's exactly what we need. He has met our deepest need to be forgiven. He has made us holy and right with God. And this is the only way we can find hope if our sins are forgiven and we come back to the God who made us. That's where we find hope. And only Jesus can bring us back. And He has been made perfect forever. And because He's been made perfect forever, He's able to make us perfect if we keep believing in Him until the end. Jesus is the better high priest who saves us fully and forever. Oh, beloved, we have a sure hope in the gospel because Jesus, the better high priest, guarantees it. So press on. Don't give up. You know, whatever is tugging at your heart this morning, don't give in to it. Don't give up. Hold on to Jesus because there is no other saviour. There's no better high priest. Christ is our sure and steadfast anchor. And they encourage one another to hold on to Jesus, to hold fast to our hope in Him. Only Jesus, the Son of God, is strong and sufficient to save. Only He is worthy of our hope. Let's pray together.